This podcast is brought to you by Labyrinth Marketing, an award-winning strategic marketing and capability consultancy passionate about step change in the growth of brands and agencies by setting long-term strategy and supporting empowering the people behind the brands and business to bring these plans to life through capability programs, training, coaching, mentoring, and providing extra resource. Hello, and welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Today's podcast that's kicking off season four is an area of personal understanding. It's imposter syndrome, a topic that we have previously covered on the Whole Marketer podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, no other than Rita Clifton CBE, I want to talk about what imposter syndrome means to me and why it's so important. Imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern in which an individual has feelings of self-doubt and personal competence, or a persistent internalised fear of being found out, seen as a fraud, and the fear of not being good enough. Those that have imposter syndrome often doubt their skills, talents, and accomplishments, and they do this despite their education, their breadth of experience, and also their accomplishments. These feelings can have a negative impact on our mental health, causing us to have feelings of anxiety, additional stress, internalised pressure, which could often lead to depression. It can also hold you back from achieving your personal and professional goals, which will impact on your fulfilment. And as we know, fulfilment is a key pillar of the whole marketer concept. So I make no apology for covering imposter syndrome for the second time on the podcast. Today's guest is Rita Clifton, CBE. She has been called a brand guru by the Financial Times and a doyenne of branding by Campaign Magazine. Retail Week commented that she's a fabulous ambassador for business. Alongside her board chairing and non-executive roles, Rita is a writer, keynote speaker, conference chair and practitioner on all aspects of brands, branding and business leadership. Her career has included being vice chair and strategy director at Saatchi & Saatchi as London CEO and chair at the global brand consultancy Interbrand and also co-founder of Brandcap. She is now portfolio chair and non-executive director and on the board of businesses that include John Lewis Partnership, Nationwide Building Society and Essential PLC. Previous boards have also included ASOS, Dixon Retail, PLC, EMAP, Booper, Populous Group and her non-profit boards have included WWF, Worldwide Fund for Nature and the UK Sustainable Development Commission and Green Alliance. She was also recently appointed chair at the Forum for the Future, the leading international sustainable organisation. Rita is a regular columnist and media commentator, as well as the author of Future of Brands and two editions of The Economist book, Brands and Branding. Her new book on leadership, Love Your Imposter, was launched in September 2020. And I'll be referring to this book throughout today's podcast. Rita, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Well, thank you. And thanks very much for inviting me. So as always with the Whole Marketer podcast, we always start with a big juicy question up front. What is imposter syndrome? you? Well, I mean, if I start with saying what imposter syndrome is in its more formal definition, I mean, if you look at, for example, Harvard Business Review, it talks about how imposter syndrome are feelings of inadequacy despite evident success. Now, what that means to me, if I were to translate it into personal experience, it means 
those feelings where you think someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you don't really deserve to be here, or you can't really do that job, or otherwise you should step aside for someone who really knows what they're doing. Now, of course, later in your career, you realise that actually a lot of people don't quite know what they're doing and actually just need to get on with it, with all the experiences that you've had and bring those to bear. Or otherwise, it could just be those moments where you think, God, this time, this time is going to be the time that everything goes pear-shaped in what you're about to do. I mean, it's definitely that thing on your shoulder that in some way, shape or form nags you or tells you that you can't really do what you would like to do, or you're planning to do, or you're about to do, etc. And you can look at that imposter either as a friend or as a foe. And as you know, I've done a book called Love Your Imposter. So that probably gives you a bit of a clue as to how I think you should look at it. Loving Your Imposter is the viewpoint that you have, Rita. What other advice would you give to those that are listening on how to love their imposter? What I really feel about imposter feelings, and actually it's not just me, if you take quite a lot of high-profile celebrities, I mean, if anyone listening to this podcast experiences imposter syndrome, what I'd say is you are in very good company. People like Tom Hanks, Michelle Obama, Emma Watson, Adele actually was talking about it recently, and Olivia Colman, award-winning actress. What she talks about with her imposter, she thinks that, you know, every time she goes on a set, she thinks this is going to be the time she gets fired. But actually, these have been very powerful drives. And what I recognise about myself is, you know, for lots of experiences I've had in my childhood or growing up or university or first jobs and all that kind of stuff, some of these emotions and also the drives that they gave could actually be quite useful. So actually, sometimes if you can look at them in the right way, they can be useful sources of energy, of drive, of motivation to stretch yourself more, to do more, to be more than you think that you could have been. So when I look over my shoulder at this imposter, these days, after a career of thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this or whatever, I'm going, actually, I know you. And I know why you're there. And thank you, because you're going to make me perform better and do better and be more. And by the way, what I'm not saying to people is you absolutely have to drive yourself, you know, into the ground over time, but rather to recognise the drives that we've all got and try to get a mindset on them is that actually there's a purpose for them being there sometimes. And, you know, this is about if you want to make the most of yourself, if you want to really be the best you can be and make the biggest difference that you can, it's good to try and harness whatever of those background drives that you have and to try to do it in a positive way. And if you do find, though, that imposter feelings can be incapacitating or debilitating or whatever, and you can't adapt your mindset, you might well need to get They'll benefit from some professional help. I've certainly had some professional help at certain times in my life. And sometimes it can be really helpful. And that's for a minority of people who experience this, about 10 to 15%. But actually, considering that 70% of people approximately experience imposter feelings, that's an awful lot of people in the middle here who get these feelings and actually have got the capacity to do something about them. I think that's really interesting is acknowledging about how many people do actually have imposter syndrome and have that little voice with inside their head or that tap on the shoulder is, is the analogy that you gave. When it's not surprising, really, our brains are there to keep us safe. 
And when we are doing things that feel new or stepping outside of our comfort zone, that's for me when the imposter is almost that little bit louder and is almost warning us that we are doing something new or that uh, we're stepping outside of our comfort zone. And as you say, it's about speaking to that imposter and thanking them for highlighting where you are, but also speaking back and ensuring that they know that you are safe and that you are, you know, taking the reins and going to do that challenge and putting the work in, enlisting those reasons, those rational reasons as to why that's not the case can also help. I totally agree. And, you know, you talk about stretch and also put the work in. I mean, I like several of Malcolm Gladwell's books and, you know, in Outliers, what he talks about is that, you know, you need about 10,000 hours to be really tip-top at something. And if you take something like, I don't know, presenting skills, public speaking, as we know, this can be a source of, you know, the biggest fears that people can have. And when I first started, you know, presenting in public meetings or conferences and things like that, I was so scared that if I held a piece of paper, honestly, it would flap so much. It was such a dead giveaway. And I used to read my notes literally aloud rather than have the confidence to, you know, speak to directly to the audience and, you know, wanted auto cue and things like that. But what I'd say is that it was a personal stretch for me. It took me into the stretch zone to keep on doing that and get a lot of practice in, in public speaking. And, you know, you really have to work at stuff. There are no shortcuts sometimes to getting yourself in the stretch zone if you want to make the biggest difference. So I think that it's important to live as much of our working lives in the stretch zone. You know, there's comfort zone, there's stretch zone, there's no-go zone. And what you're trying to do, I think, often in your career, is have the energy to keep on pushing yourself into the stretch zone so that you're always doing more then your past experience might dictate. But every time you do it, it builds a bit more confidence or a bit more learning about how you can do it better next time. And I think that's an energising place to be. Definitely links in with adopting that growth mindset. And when I was reading your book, Love Your Imposter, Be Your Best Self, Flaws and All, in particular, you talked about the importance of knowing thyself. And viewing your background and your past life experiences that you've had as this positive drive, what impact do you believe that this has had on overcoming your imposter? Mm. It's really interesting. And actually, on the Know Thyself, I've noticed that you know, in your book, or your really excellent book, that you talk about the importance of this as well, of understanding yourself. For example, when I first went to university, you know, we didn't have any money as a family. And I went to university and obviously met a lot of people who did have many more resources. And, you know, they were attached to clubs I had never heard of. And they always had the right shoes. I mean, you know, all of these insecurities that, that you can feel. And I did feel inadequate. And I thought, you know, I don't really belong here. But what I realised at the end of university when I was first applying for jobs is that actually all the things that I'd had to do as a teenager, so, you know, we didn't have any money unless I earned it. So I used to, you know, work at weekends and all through university holidays and doing odd jobs or working in factories and bars and clubs and experimental facilities. I mean, I'd, I had a whole range of jobs and met a whole wide range of people. I even taught dancing, you know. I'd, I did a lot of jobs in my spare time just to kind of keep the show on the road. And what I realised is that meeting that many people and those many different types of people gave me a much 
greater insight into different people's lives and how you relate to other people and empathy. And that was really helpful when he moved into a job whereby you needed to be able to understand people. So my first job was in advertising. And obviously to do advertising, you need to understand people's motivations and what might turn them on or turn them off and what they were looking for in their lives and insights about that. And I got very, very nosy about people as a result of my background and experiences and everything else. So it actually stood me in good stead. And I got to appreciate what I had previously thought were challenges and, you know, and wounds, if you like. So I think that's why it's really important to understand yourself and how it is that your background experiences have shaped you and driven you and make sure that you are really channeling the energy that that gives you, the drive that that gives you in a positive way. Now, just referring back to one of the high-profile people I mentioned who talked about imposter syndrome. I mean, Hillary Clinton, for example, who very kindly gave me an endorsement for the book, and I think in great part because she herself has experienced imposter syndrome. She said when she first went to university, she looked around the room and thought, all these women are much smarter than me. But of course, that gave her a drive, you know, to really push herself and to succeed. And, you know, she did pretty well in her life and career. So I do think that you can assemble background experiences in a positive way that actually makes you distinctive in what you're offering to either employers or funders or indeed people in the world at large. Definitely. And I think it's part of what makes you you and the ability to not only identify it, but to also own it. I'm sure there's lots of skills that you've built along the way from all of those experiences that allow you to have a perspective that maybe somebody else around the table doesn't have. Yes, I hope so. And I think that, you know, just common sense, you know, if you, you know, as a teenager, you have to sort of sort out your own life and get into way to be and things like that. You learn common sense. And also you learn that you've got to create your own security and platform. I mean, actually, as it happens, for me, what that meant was I didn't want to take any risks because, you know, I wanted some sort of financial security and other security. For other people, actually, that drives them in a different direction. You know, if they've, if, if they haven't had any money, they're so determined and they're prepared to take risks and whatever that might mean. I mean, we all respond to our background experiences, I think, in a different way. The thing that really matters is that you understand yourself and what drives you so that actually you can almost objectively look at yourself and coach yourself and help yourself or otherwise get other people, you know, friends, colleagues, etc. I think it's really important that you can listen to feedback from others and also others will tend to spot things in you that you might not even see in yourself. I mean, just this point relates to something in my career that's really stuck in my mind. I mean, when I was a strategy director, for example, at Saatchi and Saatchi, I hadn't really seen myself as taking a step up to being a chief executive, for example. It took a headhunter to contact me and persuade me to go and have a conversation about being chief executive at another company. And I thought, how interesting. It took someone else to spot that I had the potential to do it because I didn't necessarily see that in myself. So trying to really listen to what other people say to you and you know, give you feedback on, both positive and also more challenging, is a really important part of self-awareness. And that self-awareness stands you in very good stead, I think, for future leadership. As indeed as understanding your own vulnerabilities and flaws. As you say, you know, in my book, the subtitle is 
you know, be your best self, flaws and all. We've all got flaws as human beings. It's a very normal, natural human thing. And imposter syndrome is also a very normal human thing. But these are the things that give you empathy with other human beings and help you understand other human beings so you can get the very best out of them too. I couldn't agree more. And I think empathy is one of those skills that we need both as a marketer in order to have that deep-rooted emotional empathy understanding with their wants, needs, beliefs. Also, you know, as an employee, as a leader, as somebody who's, you know, leading cross-functional teams, being able, yes, to identify people's strengths, but also have empathy in areas that they're struggling with and being able to be open and honest and vulnerable with those people in your care so you can build those deeper levels of connection as well. I totally agree with you. And I think... Now, when I talk to people about sharing vulnerabilities and, and things like that, what I'm not saying, by the way, is that you should go around telling everyone how rubbish you are all the time and say, I'm using another, <laughs> et cetera, even though occasionally you might feel it. I'd rather think about what it is that you've experienced. I mean, particularly when you're trying to help somebody else, it's actually saying, do you know, I found this a real challenge, either earlier in my career or even last week. You know, I was struggling with this. And these are some of the things that I tried. So I found that a really powerful way to help people to share something that has been a challenge for you that you've noticed that they might find a challenge and see if you can help them sort it through. So I think there is a real balance here. You know, the stuff that you feel, your insecurities, etc., those are things that clearly you know and can harness, etc. You don't have to share that with everybody all the time because you know, you're there to help other people be the best they can be, uh, as opposed to use them as sort of, you know, quasi-therapists for you, you yourself. So I think that there is a real balance there to be struck. But I think, you know, as a human being, if you don't want to see other people be brilliant, if that doesn't motivate you, I don't think you've got the right to call yourself a leader. And if you don't want to see other people be brilliant, you need to get some therapy yourself, because sometimes, you know, you might be having a reductive effect on the people around you and you need to get that sorted out from your own mindset so true and I see so many coaches or mentees when we start to get to the root cause of why they're carrying a certain limiting belief it's often based on some feedback that it's often based on some feedback that they've received, whether that's a manager or a colleague that maybe was offering feedback when not necessarily solicited, and they're still carrying it to this day. And actually what they're feeding back is their own projection of their own issues or their own belief systems about how something should be approached and not necessarily giving true feedback on how that would benefit you. And that impact can be so lasting and so negative for so many. I always think now about how much care we should really put into the words when we're giving feedback, but just in our day-to-day workings with others. I do think that's very true. Although I think if you've done a bit of work on yourself, you know, you can receive feedback and understand the person on the other side, you know, even better. And so therefore, even difficult feedback you can put in the right context and the reason I say this I remember once having a piece of feedback that really did upset me I mean obviously there are bits of feedback over time you just think that was genuinely unfair and you've helped the other person to see things in a slightly different way and I put help in inverted commas there as you can imagine where someone hasn't noticed what you've done because they've been very busy or tied up with their own stuff so sometimes you do have to 
help people know or help people understand what you've done that they might not have noticed. And I'm not suggesting that you CC everything you've ever done in emails and things like that. But you sometimes do need to draw people's attention to some things that you have done if they haven't noticed. But one piece of feedback that actually was very helpful to me, even though it was very annoying at the time was when I was transitioning from being a practitioner, a deep practitioner, a specialist practitioner into being a functional director, i.e. leading a team as opposed to doing the work. I remember getting a piece of feedback. I was the section leader or the business unit leader and I was still wanting to own some of the specialist insights and the detail and everything else. I was really leaning in and being passionate. And the feedback I got was, you know, you're doing a very good job here, but sometimes you can come across and wait for this as being a bit of a breathless girl. Now, you can imagine how that went down with me at the time. I was angry, I sulked, I seethed and everything else. I thought it was really unkind. But when I reflected on it, I actually thought, you know, I can see where he's coming from because I was so passionate about something and so keen to, you know, get my point across that I lost a sense of authority. And so therefore, it taught me that sometimes you've got to lean back. You've got to lean back and listen, not lean in and lecture, if I can put it that way. And I consciously then started to think about how I could make sure that I was giving off more authority as a business unit leader, as opposed to, you know, a deep specialism as a practitioner. And so actually it was quite helpful. So sometimes getting the right mindset about difficult feedback is really good too. I couldn't agree more. And when you have that level of personal understanding around what drives you and what you might need to be mindful of in your behaviours, you know, what are those strengths that play out positively, but they can also have a flip side and potentially be perceived negatively and have the belief in what it is that you bring to the world. I think that you can more subjectively take feedback, as you say, think about what was going on or what they may have been seeing in order to give that feedback and and also what might have been at play for you during that moment in time. And I think sometimes when you remove the emotion of the feedback and actually what was driving, not what was happening, but why was that happening, you can really get to the root cause about what was truly happening for you inside at that moment and for them potentially inside at that moment because we are just two human beings meeting two belief systems at any given time. Exactly. You know, we need to understand other people for them to understand us. You know, I know it sounds a bit obvious, but you know, sometimes it's easy to get obsessed with how you feel. Sometimes, you know, on the other side, the other person might be having a bad day or otherwise they might be new to leadership themselves. So sometimes you have to help them give you feedback. (laughs) You know, as you say, we're two human beings, you know, and we're hopefully all trying to help each other be the best we can be. So maybe come at it from that point of view. What I loved about your book, Rita, is that it was an amalgamation of all of your learned experiences, from Rita as a child to the Rita that we see before us as CBE. And all of them were open and honest accounts, which completely played to my values as one of my values is open and honesty. And one of the lessons you shared was never assume. And this really stood out for me as I see so many marketers assuming in their daily practice, whether that's the assumption or as I call it, the straw poll of one when they're building customer insight or leaders assuming what the needs are of the marketers and their care without actually taking the time to find out. Can you tell us more about what not assuming means to you? Mm. Yes. So, 
never seen was a, a lesson I really I've learned a few times over. I mean, apart from the very practical thing in my early career when I was a client manager before I became a strategist, just things like you know, is the technology working? Has everyone got all the right background briefing documents and everything else? And you know, that really taught me you know, not to assume that people had read what you you know, had sent to them or that they were going to show up in the right place or that the technology was going to work. So actually that was important to me because the level of professionalism and also, you know, the level of checking that we often need in our working lives is really important. So, you know, but trying to be organised around that, making sure that you are briefing the right people in the right way and making sure that you know what they're going to say, etc. That was really, really good learning. And, you know, when I got a little bit more senior, I had a really scary moment where Maurice Saatchi, who was obviously one of the founders of Saatchi and Saatchi, had got me involved in a project. And, and I'd subcontracted some of the work to someone else in the group. I mean, it was, you know, cut a long story short. It was the sort of thing when we're all busy, we can do. And I assumed that this person, because they'd come recommended, would know what they were going to be doing. And I hadn't checked. I hadn't checked the presentation before I you know, went into the room. I thought it would all be fine. But of course, the minute I introduced this person to talk about the research, their opening gambit was, of course, you know, the research didn't work quite in the way that we were hoping. I broke out into hives, I think, was I was thinking, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You know, this was commissioned by my ultimate boss. And I should have warned the client that things hadn't happened in the right, you know, those sort of things. Those are sweaty moments, learning moments where you think, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to, you know, lead a meeting where I don't know what people are going to say so I can prepare people in advance. So that was one of the sort of more practical leadership things I've never assumed. From a practitioner point of view, you know, my pet hate has been, you know, with people who are learning, for example, how to be a strategist or, you know, learning about how to do great consumer insights, etc. When people say to me, you know, well, I don't know, just as a satirical, you know, W1A. I don't know if anyone watched that programme. It made me howl with laughter about, you know, how the BBC had a head of values and, you know, all the things that they were doing about the brand and things like that. But you know, there's a practitioner in there who says things like, well, of course, people don't watch television anymore. Or otherwise, when people say, well, of course, you know, everybody buys this or nobody thinks that. And it would drive me mad because, you know, as a sort of natural sort of forensic scientist, I would go, that's clearly not true. There are certain people who do think that and certain people who don't. And let's find out who was thinking certain things and why and what's going on there and delving into the data because data is fascinating. Mm. I mean, data is fascinating. It tells you about people and what they're doing and the difference between what they are doing, what they say they're going to do. I mean, I would love piling up research documents, you know, and of course nowadays, you know, looking online and doing analytics, et cetera, to go, right, isn't it interesting that, heavy users of this brand feel this way or like this or they're also doing that. I mean, this data, if you're nosy, is addictive. <laughs> so never assume, you know, just on a very superficial level that you know what's going on. It's really good. You've got to kind of go in there and really have a good look around and understand motivations and, you know, the real data. And also bear in mind, don't assume that what people say they're going to do is what they actually do, because as we know from real life, that's not what happens. No. And there were some of those lessons that you were sharing there that were smiling and nodding along. So one, I always say, Delegate doesn't mean alleviate. 
very good. I like that. Yeah. So you might allocate a task to somebody, but it doesn't alleviate your responsibility of making sure it gets delivered to the quality that you want, which sounds like you had the same learned experience. And honestly, it's one of my pet peeves is that straw poll of one voice in meetings that is, you know, they've either seen something happen once or they're assuming how that consumer or customer would behave based on their own learned experiences based in, as you say, from having not actually mined that beautiful data that they have available to them to find the actual fact. And, you know, I make it almost my task to make sure that when we are having conversations in the room with my clients around their consumers or their customers and what their insight is that we are calling out what we know is fact because there is that data source to robustly validate that what is an observation namely that we have seen it happen a few times but we haven't validated it or what is truly an assumption and trying to call those levels out in businesses so that that straw poll one voice doesn't dominate the conversation and the plans that are being developed no, absolutely. And I think this is not to say that one shouldn't develop hypotheses, which is clearly a fundamentally important part of what we do. We look at facts, data, feelings, quantitative and qualitative research, you know, all that kind of stuff, and we develop mm-hmm. hypotheses. But that's different. That's different from assuming. It's very different. And that hypothesis has been developed or mined from a source of data in the first instance. And there's also that scope to go out and test that further still. So you're right. There's maybe this fact, observation, assumption and hypothesis (laughs) calling out what needs to be tested as well, Rita. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, then you you can make leaps, but you need to make a leap from a fact base as opposed to an assumption base. I think that's, you know, that's the, the key thing that I would take out of there. But, you know, again, I think as a marketeer, being nosy, and maybe we'll come on to what I think is so important as a marketer, but being nosy, I think, is a really important quality. Being nosy is absolutely essential. I call it curiosity. That kind of, <laughs> that, that kind of you know, that intuition of that person that's just constantly people-watching or trying to work out what somebody might do next and what's a play when they're watching children and families and people in coffee shops. They're the people that I want to Um, have in my teams, you know, those nosy, inquisitive, curious people. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I go to a different country, and obviously it's a challenge if you're in countries where people can't speak either English or any of the other languages that you speak, but if I can communicate with drivers you know, people in reception, in shops and things like that. I'm really interested in asking them, you know, what's working well, what's selling well, or how does business feel at the moment? Are you busy? You know, I think it's another source of data to add to all other sorts of data. And I think that, you know, keeping an open mind all the time is really important. My husband hates, I mean, he, sometimes it, he rolls his eyes when I want to talk to you know, drivers or people in shops and things like that, but I don't make any apology for it. Make no apology, Rita. That's exactly what I do. My husband also jokes about you make friends with anyone, even people that you sit next to on the tube. And it's true, I do, because I'm just people curious. Exactly, exactly. What's an important part of the job fundamental important part of the job so Rita I could talk to you all day about your learned experiences but we have to ask the question what are your career highs and lows look I think there are some you know practical moments sort of you know that stick in the mind I mean I think 
getting the CBE, you know, getting that honour was obviously a career and life high. And in great part because you know, my mother died a few years ago, but I got the award just before she died. And she sat within 10 paces of the Queen oh. of getting my CBE. So as you imagine, that was a real high. And the fact that actually I wasn't aware it was coming. I didn't know about you know getting the award or anything else. And a lot of people have bothered to write in to say that they felt I deserved it. And that was obviously a big career high because, you know, I didn't know who they were, but someone, busy people had bothered to write in. So that was a real career high. I think, you know, working on, believe it or not, British Airways for many years in its heyday and being part of a award-winning global commercial, which many people on the call won't remember, but it was one of those things where I wrote the brief I briefed the creative director and actually the execution, which was people from all over the world coming together to form a face. It was a well-known commercial. It symbolised borders coming down in the world. This was after the Berlin Wall had fallen and everything else. It was an amazing commercial. And when I first saw it, it actually made me cry mm. for many reasons. A, because it was such so symbolic of you know what was happening in the time in a positive way. But also because I felt, you know, I made a real difference there. I made a difference to something that actually has made a mark. So that was quite a career high. But honestly, I think the main career high that I've ever had is a whole series of highs, which is seeing people that I worked with or developed or trained or recruited or whatever become brilliant. That is the ultimate set of career highs. And I think, you know, when I see somebody worked in my team, you know, running a major group these days and being so supportive of diversity and training and development. I mean, it, these are things that, that really stay with you and make you feel as though you've made a long-term difference. Now, did you mention Lowe's? I, I did. <laughs> well, I guess I've mentioned, you know, a couple of them, which is on the Never Assume front, but I think my real lows, after 9-11, I mean, I was chief executive and the, the management consulting or brand consulting market, after um, there was a dot bomb, you know, dot com turned to dot bomb around, you know, the year 2000. And that took away so much of the consultancy business at the time. And later that year, in the year 2001, much worse, was 9-11. And... Market just collapsed. I mean, let alone the loss of life and the tragedy and everything else. The impact it also then had on business meant that I had to make about a quarter of our company redundant, you know, and that's a real career low. When people that you've recruited, trained, loved, and who've stayed with the business and have been great contributors, when you have to make people redundant as a business leader, that is the most upsetting and destructive thing. So it was a real career low. And I, at the time, I remember Nelly Furtado that had a track called I'm Like a Bird. I don't know if you remember that. It was a fantastic yeah. track. It's still a soundtrack, I think, to many, you know, other commercials and things like that. But I remember walking around the office and that music was playing in the studio. And I was thinking, I'm going to have to make a lot of these people redundant. And it was so draining and upsetting but these are the things sometimes you have to do to make the business survive anyway that was a real career low and look other business people I've met I won't mention the name but a certain you know retail business magnate you know I had one of my worst ever business meetings with them because they had a very bullying sort of destructive tone 
And, you know, that triggers me. I mean, we've all got our triggers, haven't we? Mm, we do. It was just an upsetting meeting because I didn't think that I'd been good. He brought out the worst in me and I was angry with myself, putting myself and also my team in, in that position. So it was a bit of a low, but that person got their comeuppance at some other time. So you go, there is karma. Sometimes in the world, there's karma. I wouldn't wish bad things on anybody, but you sort of wish that people who do bad things to others you know, move away, go and retire to a yacht or, you know, whatever, but stop poisoning workplaces and business. Definitely. You've got a learned experience there. And I think sometimes you want to ensure that they get a learned experience from what they're doing. And so I can definitely see what you mean. So Rita, thank you so much for your time on today's podcast. Now we always finish the podcast with the following question. What one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? We sort of touched on it, I think, in the conversation so far. I mean, you have the word curiosity and curious, and I have the word nosy. But honestly, I think that's the best piece of advice that you could have as a marketer. You've got to stay nosy about how people are changing, technology is changing, how the world is changing, and the difference that you can make in it. And I think that being curious, it also feeds your energy. You know, when we're thinking about our own personal brands, you know, restlessness And curiosity is a really important part of that. And I think that, you know, opening your mind to what's happening and making sure you're absorbing all of that in the future is definitely, in my view, the best piece of advice. And if I had a second piece of advice, it's about learning the numbers, you know, making the business case, learning the language of finance. I mean, I want many more people who come from a marketing background to end up on boards and running organisations, And to do that, you need to learn the language of finance and attach that to your marketing specialism and your marketing expertise. So I think learning the numbers is a really important thing and getting rid of whatever obstacles there might be to to you doing that. Great piece of advice and I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time again. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you. And, you know, I do hope that people listen in, buy your book. I hope you know, they might buy my book. Always interested to know what, what people think about it. And also, all the very, very best of luck with you and your business. And hopefully, again, everyone on this call in their career. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Whole Marketeer podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do click follow below for more weekly podcasts. The Whole Marketer book is now available in all good bookstores. And to find out more about how Labyrinth can support and step change the growth of your brand or agency, go to www.labyrinthmarketing.co.uk. Music.